Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. If you want to come, grab your seats. If you've got a Bible with you, could you please turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to continue our series through the Gospel of Mark, all about Jesus. But before we get into that, I just want to just talk to you about an experience I've had fairly recently. Um, and that is, um, I don't know if any of you are campers here and like going camping. There are people who do and there are people who don't. And when we first went uh, camping as a family, <clears throat> I was sold an expectation of what this would look like. We would go somewhere in the beautiful <clears throat> countryside that this nation has to offer. The weather would be glorious. There would be evenings outside in front of the fire, under the stars, cooking your food, <clears throat> having good time together as a family and enjoying. And then when that was all over, we would put the kids to bed and then we would go to bed and we would sleep soundly in nature and wake up in the morning refreshed for a new day and kind of enjoy. And that was kind of the, the dream I was sold. However, the reality was somewhat different. I remember we turned up on a campsite and in the big skip that you passed as you drove into the field was a tent that had been thrown there the night before by another family who'd left with a massive argument and basically they had taken their tent and they had chucked it in the skip and they had gone home. We pitched our tent on the side of a cliff in a Force 9 gale which almost ended our marriage in the process. We then had rain most of the day, had to kind of cook the food inside the tent without burning the tent down while yelling at the children to stay still so they didn't knock uh, it over. We went to bed and it was so cold. I had multiple layers on. I was in the sleeping bag, which is just another word for a coffin, like this, pulled up, freezing through the night next to children who would not, not lay still. And then to top it all off, the following day, I was hanging over the fence at the edge of the campsite, throwing up the things that we'd eaten the night before because it wasn't cooked properly. It was a joyous, joyous time. And so the expectation did not quite fit the reality of what it was like camping. And what we're going to be looking at today is a little bit of that. What the, um, what the expectation of what it means to follow Jesus versus the reality of what it is really like to follow Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, we are now in Mark chapter 9. We've had last week where the big center point of the gospel, we're halfway through now, so we're rolling down towards the end of the gospel. Peter has been questioned by Jesus and says, who do you say I am? The most important question in the world. Who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. He gets it. He sees something, but then he immediately messes it up because he doesn't understand what that means. And we saw that last week, and now we're going to roll into the next section, which is connected to it at the aftermath of that. And so we've got a passage that is going to appear on the screen uh, behind us. Je Jeremy, oh, he's out there. Jeremy's around with the roving mic, so we've got some people who are going to read along. 
So I hand over to you now. Off you go. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they, were no, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do this scribes say that the first Elijah must come and he said to them Elijah does not come first to restore all things and how is written of the son of man and he should suffer marry things and be treated with contempt but I tell you that Elijah has come and that they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Fantastic. Thank you very much, those who read. All right, what we're going to look at today is Peter's confessed to Christ. He's, he's got it right in um, name, but he's got it wrong in context. And what, what Mark has done in the, the, um, the design of his gospel, he's shown that revelation. But now what he's going to show is what it means to actually follow Jesus in reality. So we, today we've got three things. We're going to look at the revelation, the reality, and the response. See what I did there? Three points, all beginning with R. Today is the day I made it as a preacher. <laughs> High five the person next to you and say, I was there. I was there. I saw it. Three points, beginning with R. First one, the revelation of Jesus, verses 2 to 8. Okay, so it begins with being with him. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them. The six days links it back to the previous event, which was Peter's confession of the Christ. So Mark is making a point. This follows on. This is not unrelated. This is connected to what's happened. And this event takes place on the way because Jesus has been in Galilee. He's now in the middle section of the gospel on the way. And in the final section, he will be in Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John are his um, kind of inner circle. Jesus has taken them away before. They're kind of of the 12. Those three are the closest to Jesus, and they've taken them away. And this situation, what happens now, is completely at the initiative of Jesus. He took them, it says, and then he led them, it says, up the high mountain. So what's coming, this revelation that we've just read about, the transfiguration, a very kind of famous, important passage in our Gospels. This is all at the action of Jesus. Jesus is the one controlling this. Jesus is the one doing this. He's called the disciples to himself. He's powered them for service. And now he's bringing them into a situation where they get to see more of him. And then what happens is the presence of God comes. And what Mark does is he piles up illusion after illusion and reference after a reference of the presence of God coming at that moment. We've got six days, it begins. This links back to Moses. We've seen already in the gospel multiple, multiple times where Mark has alluded to Jesus as a new Moses, a new and better Moses. Moses is the famous deliverer of um, the people of God, led them out of slavery to Egypt. Jesus has come as a new and better Moses to lead them out of slavery, but not to a physical oppressor like the Romans, but to sin and guilt and all the things that come with that. And we will see that outworked more and more as the gospel comes. So there's six days, which references the six days Moses was on Mount Sinai, where he met the, the presence of God in Exodus 24. Then it's the high mountain. They go up a high mountain. Mountains are places of revelation and encounter in the Bible. People go up mountains to meet God. And this, again, another reference to Mount Sinai, where the presence of God comes upon it. A meeting place between man and God. It says Jesus was transfigured, which means he was transformed. A radical transformation came over him. And it says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, uh, that no one on earth could uh, bleach them. And in the other accounts, we find this in Matthew and Luke as well. It says his face shone. He was something about him was utterly transformed from just a man standing there. There was something about the glory of God that came upon him. And then it says 
There also appeared with him uh, Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses were two towering Old Testament figures who were men who had led the people of God. They'd proclaimed the word of God. They'd brought deliverance uh, on God's behalf to his people. And so they were massive um, in the history of the people of God. And so they are there with Jesus testifying to something about him. Then, it's, then you get the classic Peter. Oh, so we build some tents, Lord. Why tents? Well, tents were dwelling places. And the most important tent in the history of Israel was the tabernacle, which we looked at when we did uh, Leviticus, that they built. God said, build me this tent. It looks like this. Here's all the designs. Why? Because that's where the presence of God would dwell among his people. And the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle for years and years and years until eventually it was moved and they built, Solomon built a permanent temple, which was just a, a permanent version of the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt. Then we get the cloud comes. It says a cloud comes. What's clouds about? Well, clouds represent the presence of God. When the cloud drops, the cloud dropped in the temple, it dropped in the tabernacle, God was there. God showed up. It was a symbol of his presence. The, the cloud was on Mount Sinai when Moses was there. It even has this word overshadowed them, which is the same word used when the presence of God filled the tabernacle and later the temple in Exodus and in 1 Kings 8. And it says a voice comes out. When a voice speaks from the cloud, God is speaking. God is speaking. And this happens most noticeably in the Old Testament with the giving of the Ten Commandments. You can read about that in Exodus 20, where God speaks to Moses and we get the Ten Commandments. So all these um, points that Mark has put in there, points about the presence of God is being manifested there before their eyes. And then it ends with this line. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. Jesus only. And what's that about? Well, Mark is pointing to all these things that have happened and saying all these things about the presence of God, the power of God, the glory of God, they all find their complete summing up in one place. Where? Jesus. Jesus is the presence of God come to earth. He is the one who all the Old Testament points to. Moses and Elijah were merely forerunners, precursors to the one who was going to come. The one that Peter has confessed, you're the Messiah, he is now here in Jesus. He is fully represented. They no longer need a tent for God to dwell among men because Jesus is that dwelling place where God has come among men. He is there amongst them. He is the one. We get the voice that comes from the cloud that speaks, and we've already had this happen once in Mark's Gospel. Where did it happen in the first time, chapter 1? At the baptism. The baptism comes, and the voice of God speaks, and that was a confirmation. It says, you are my son, with you I am well pleased, at the beginning of his ministry. Now we have revelation, where the voice of God speaks, and he's saying to everyone, this is my son. You listen, and you look at him. He is the one. Look at him. This is my son. This is God come to earth. You should listen to him. And so everything that happened on that mountain points to Jesus. He is the prophetic hope of the people of God. He is the one God has promised from the Old Testament. He is the one who's going to lead his people into freedom out of slavery to sin and guilt and shame. And at the end of it, it's just Jesus left there because he is the sum total. He is the summing up. And he is the one who's going to walk the way 
of Jerusalem, to Jerusalem and all that that means. And so that is the revelation that has happened before Peter, James, and John. They've seen it. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God the Son come to earth. But then we come crashing down into the reality of following Jesus. Verses 9 to 13. So, but God the Father has told the disciples to listen to God the Son. As we said, listen to him. Well, listen to him about what? And specifically, Jesus then starts speaking to them. And it says they come down the mountain. He charges them to tell no one what they've seen. This is in line with stuff that Jesus has already said in the gospel. And the reason for that is he doesn't want people to get the wrong idea of what kind of Messiah he is. They, they think they're thinking of radical triumphalism where they, they'll come and he'll kill the Romans and kick them out. And that is not the kind of Messiah he is. And what does it actually say? It says, you're not allowed to tell anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And so that is the reality is the Messiah has come, but he is a Messiah who has come to suffer. He is a Messiah who has come to suffer and die. And Jesus is merely repeating the message that he said in the previous chapter. Go back and look at chapter 8, verse 31. He explains them again. I've come. I am the one. I've come as one sent from God. In fact, I am God. But actually what it means for me to save my people, to lead my people, is that I am to suffer and to die. For me to have glory, suffering must precede it. Before the resurrection, there must be the cross. And Jesus speaks of his resurrection there. He uses that phrase again to describe himself, the Son of Man, which we saw last time. is only used in the context of his suffering and his humanity. And actually, Jesus is one who's going to come. And what it means for him to be the Messiah for him to be the one um, who has come is that he has to suffer. He has to die. He has to go to Jerusalem and be rejected by the scribes and uh, the, the chief priests and the elders who make up the ruling council. But with that revelation of the reality of what it means is there's misunderstanding. And Peter, again, speaks up. And he does it this time when he... Um, it's not quite as obvious as the previous one where he basically took Jesus aside and told him off. It says he rebuked Jesus. And how did Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. And we looked at that last time. He's trying it again, but he's been a bit more subtle about it. And he starts talking about Elijah. And he's basically saying, well, basically, the, the scribes say Elijah must come first. And the reason he's talking about Elijah, because in the Old Testament, when Elijah was coming, it's prophesied in Malachi, there'd be a restoration of all things. It's, it's kind of a good thing. If Elijah comes, it's going to be good. He's going to restore all things. Everything's going to be fine. And so what he's basically asking is saying, is this suffering really necessary? This dying talk, do we really have to go through these things? And Jesus' response is actually, Elijah has come. And we know that because we've looked at that. Right from the very first chapter, the very first section of that, Elijah has come. Who was Elijah? John the Baptist. He was the forerunner. He said, actually, yeah, Elijah has come. And what happened to Elijah? What happened to John? We read about that. I think it was John chapter 6. What happened? They murdered him. He was imprisoned. He was rejected. He was falsely accused. And he was killed. And Jesus is saying, guess what? Elijah's come. Look what they did to him. That's what's going to happen to me. 
That's the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. And it's not just what's going to happen to Jesus, it's what's going to happen to his followers. We read through the rest of the New Testament, we see that. It will be a picture of rejection, of suffering. And this all aligns, Jesus says, with what's written in God's word. This is not a new thing. This is not a, oh dear, everything's gone wrong. This is what's going to happen. Revelation of the Messiah is followed by the reality of following him, which involves suffering. And then the final thing, the response to Jesus. So we've had this great, awesome mountaintop experience. Jesus is the one. We see him in glory. It is wonderful. Then he said, actually, no, the reality of follow me is about suffering and death. And that has to come first before the throne, before the glory. And then what we have in this next section is kind of a, an object lesson of what that looks like in reality. What that, how that actually works out practically. Because Jesus has shown them something, he's talked to them about something, and they come down the mountain, and we find the same kind of three groups who are there. We've got the crowd, we've got the scribes, we've got the disciples, and we've got the demon-possessed, who are always seen to be following Jesus' ministry wherever he is around. And so Jesus walks straight back into a crisis Satan is going on and there's a bit of an argy dispute going on because there is um, a child who is suffering, a distraught father, there's disciples trying to do something about it, there's a crowd watching on and there's the scribes who are obviously disagreeing with Jesus as is uh, what they've been doing throughout the Gospels. And so Jesus comes back into this situation and when the crowd see him, they turn to him and think, aha, what's going on? And so we have a hopeless case where there is a desperate father. And if you read the text, you can feel the desperation of the father as he describes what's happening with his son and the terrible situation that his son is in. His son is basically being assaulted by demonic evil forces that seizes him, throws him down. He grinds his teeth and foams at the mouth. You can tell this is hopeless. And the disciples, the remaining nine who weren't on the mountain, have been trying to do something about it, but to no avail. The case is hopeless. There is nothing that they can do. And then Jesus enters the situation, and he hears the exasperated report of the Father. And Jesus responds with that, and he responds in exasperation as well. And he says, Oh, faithless generation, how long have I been with you? And he's, he's just alluding back to what he's already said to the Pharisees who've just rejected him, who have no faith, even his own disciples in the boat, what were they, what were they arguing about? It was bread, and Jesus is saying, there's so much more here. The problem is you don't believe. Your, lack of, um, your unbelief and your lack of belief is the problem. The disciples are going, we haven't got enough food. And it's happening again, and Jesus is like, they just, you're, just, you're failing to believe. And he starts to interact with the father, and the child is brought to him. And as he does so, it says the spirit saw him. So what we see in here, there is a spiritual battle going on for the life of this child. Because even as the spirit saw him, we actually see, they see a manifestation of what the father is reporting. This is what is happening to my son. This is what's going on. There is conflict and stress. And Jesus says to the father, well, how long has this been happening? And he says from childhood. We don't know exactly how old the child was at this point, but it must have been many, many years and he describes the horrible situation with him. And the father cries out to him, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. 
And even Jesus' response is like, if, if I can, Jesus says, I'm here. I'm the one who can deal it. I am the one with total authority. And what we find here is the Father is going on a journey of faith. And he's, he's before Jesus. He's seeing Jesus. And he wants to know, can you do something about this situation? Can you, do, can you restore my child to where he is? And he calls on Jesus' compassion. And Jesus' response is, if... Jesus has compassion. We've seen that all throughout the gospel. Jesus loves people. He cares for people. And he says to him, all things are possible for one who believes. So there is an issue, again, of faith here. And this is the same word Jesus spoke to Jairus back in chapter 5, when Jairus' daughter was dead um, or dying and dead in the house. And Jesus says, no, believe. And he goes and he raises her from the dead. From the dead, and Jesus is saying, You just have to trust me. You just have to put your faith in me. But it seems like it's too much of a, a stretch for the Father. Because what does he say? He says, I believe. Then he immediately caveats that with, Help my unbelief. And so he's, he's believing, he's trusting, but he also recognizes the frailty of where he is. And he knows that he has not got what it takes. But he also realizes he doesn't need to amass. A particular quotient, he just needs to take what he's got and he needs to put it in Jesus. The minimal amount of faith says, I'm going to put it in you. And he risks everything. He says, God, I believe. Help me in my weakness. Help me in my frailty. And then Jesus comes and he rebukes the spirit and he commands it to leave. Those two words, rebuke and command, show Jesus' total authority over the demons. And what resultant is a struggle. It says that there was a, after this, after crying, there was convulsing. It must have been a horrible situation. Imagine what the father was going through as his child is convulsing on the floor in front of them. And then it says, um, but he looks like he's dead. He's a corpse on the floor. And so if we pause the, pause the story here, will that be at the end of what? Verse 26. This man has cried out into faith of Jesus the situation has just got a whole bunch worse. At least his son was alive in the previous verses. His son is now dead. And so everything, he put his faith in Jesus and it all got worse. But then what does it say? It says, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Those two words are resurrection language. He lifted him up and he arose. And so even when things got worse, ultimately... There was resurrection. So even in the, the, child, the father himself went through suffering, but at the end there ultimately was resurrection and the child was restored to him. And the disciples themselves had asked, what does it mean for Jesus to rise from the dead? And Jesus literally just showed them. It means for me to suffer and to die and then I will rise from the dead. That's why Mark's put this story in here for us to see, saying it follows on completely. And then we get the final part Jesus' lesson on faith. And he says, when they entered the house, his desires will ask him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can only be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, what's prayer about? Why does Jesus focus on prayer? Because prayer is a, is a resultant of faith. If someone says they have faith, but they do not pray, they are functionally an atheist. And their words expose them as a hypocrite. Because those who have faith in Jesus will pray to him. Because faith, uh, prayer shows a dependency on God. It recognizes that we haven't got the answers, that we can't do it. 
And if believers who pray prove their faith by their prayers, believers who do not pray show themselves to be atheists, functionally speaking, because they think, well, we obviously have all the answers. We can do it. And Jesus says, actually, what this needs is faith. You need to be able to pray and cry out to me, put your faith and trust in me, like that father did, even though he had such a small amount. He put it in Jesus. He cried out, I believe, even though he needed help with his unbelief. And what was with the disciples who weren't with Jesus on the mountain, actually their lack of faith had been exposed, that Jesus had warned them about with the leaven from the Pharisees. He said, I warn you, there's unbelief amongst you. And unless you trust, you won't see the things of the kingdom come. All right, let's finish. A couple of application points for us now as we finish. First one, Jesus is the one true God. The message of Mark's gospel is clear. It began in chapter 1, verse 1, where, Jesus, uh, where Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He laid it out there, and throughout it, he has made a point to his readers to say, this is who Jesus is. He is God the Son come to earth in human flesh. It's been demonstrated throughout the gospel through his power over um, the demonic, over the physical realm, over sickness and death, his authority in teaching. And then in this passage, we've seen the transfiguration where they got a glimpse into his heavenly glory as God the Son. And Mark just piled up the illusions for us to see this is God come to earth. He is the one true God. And if you are a not a believer here, the bottom line is you need a revelation of Jesus. You need to see Jesus for who he is, because this is what the Bible outlines about him. And as you see Jesus for who he is, then you will put your faith and your trust in him. You will repent of your sins, and you will look to him for salvation. It requires a revelation, not head knowledge, but actually a heartfelt looking at Jesus saying, I see you for who you are. You are the one who came to earth. You are the one who lived the perfect life, who then died on the cross bodily, who then rose from death and now is ascended and glorified. You need a revelation. And the good news is you're in the right place. Because this is where we talk about it. This is where we sing about it. This is where we read about it. Being amongst God's people is a good start. We also have an Alpha course running if you want to find out a bit more, but you need a revelation of Jesus. If you are a Christian here, you had a revelation of Jesus. If you haven't, you can't be a Christian. You need to have seen Jesus for who he are, which is fantastic. The question is, are you living in the good of that? Are you living in the good of that? Are you growing in that? Are you seeking more of that? Are you pushing into that? Is that something that happened in the past? One year, two years, 10 years, 20, 30 years ago, and you think, I'll just live on the good of that. Or is it something that you are pushing into? Are you looking to help to grow your relationship with Jesus? That's one of the questions we've been asking ourselves. Are you growing up in that? As we read and study God's word, that's where we see him. As we cry out to him in prayer, that's where we engage him. As we gather with God's people, that's where we see him at work in one another. And we come together and we see a greater, deeper revelation of Jesus. So the question I ask you is, what are you doing to grow that? You've seen something. Are you making efforts and strides to move forward in that? And the second thing for us today is, following him requires perseverance. 
Life is tough. Anyone noticed? <laughs> yeah, even in our little Western bubble where everything is better than so much more of planet Earth, it's still hard. And the reality is we're in a spiritual battle. We saw it in the passage today with that father. There was a spiritual battle. Even when Jesus got involved, the spirit battle actually intensified. And it got worse before it got better. And following Jesus requires perseverance because we walk the same road he did. We walk a road of suffering that will one day end in glory. But while we're here now, there is difficulty and hardship. And yes, he is with us with it always and he empowers us and he gives us joy that we can walk forward. But still times are tough and we still need to keep going. And the question is, are you keeping going following Jesus? Are you growing up in your faith? Some of us find ourselves in the same place as the father in the story who says, I believe. And then what did he immediately say? Help my unbelief. Because life can be tough and it causes us to question and it causes us to doubt. And what do we do in this situation? We do what the father did. We cry out to Jesus. We cry out to him and we ask him to help. Even when it gets worse, we keep crying out. We keep going. Because Jesus very pointedly says to his disciples at the end, you didn't, you didn't succeed. We weren't praying. It was prayer that was the key, which is the response of faith to me as God, the all-sufficient one, to help in your situation. And I don't know what you're going through right now in your schools in your work, in your home life, in your personal life, mentally, physically, spiritually. But I do know there's one answer. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to him and keep doing it. Keep persevering in the battle. And some of you here now find yourself in the same place as that dad. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, I trust, I'm following, but I'm struggling because of the overwhelming situations of life that are coming in. And that's the reality of following Jesus in this world. One day it will be better. But as we walk this path now, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. We're going to find ourselves in these situations. And what I'd love to do to finish is to pray. I'd love you to pray. I'll pray too, but I'd love you to pray. So why don't you stand? Can the band come up? Get ready. And we're going to respond in prayer, in words, and then in singing. Have that pointed out to us. And what we're going to do is this. Do it very simply. Shake off a bit. It's warmed up now. You can feel it, can't you? No? Okay, no, it hasn't. I was going for the psychological warmth there. Um, here's the thing. Why don't you close your eyes, and you need to make a decision between you and Jesus right now. Are you going to be someone who prays? Or are you going to be someone who's functionally an atheist? Are you going to be someone who prays? And so what I want you to do is I want you to come before the Father in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by his spirit, and cry out to him. The words in that verse where he says he cried out are strong, powerful words. He cried out. The father was desperate. His son was in an un. Uh, untreatable position that must have been horrific for him to sort of endure are you going to cry out to God 
Are you been in a situation where you've been praying and it's got worse? And you're like, what happened? I prayed. And that's because you're in a spiritual battle and there's conflict. Are you going to come now and you're going to pry out him? And whatever that situation is, you know because you're thinking of it now. I'm just going to offer you the opportunity to cry out to God and say, I believe, help my unbelief. And say, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to keep going in you. I'm going to keep persevering after you, even when it looks just hopeless. And I'm going to look forward to a day when there will be a resurrection we experience some in this life, but we will all experience it ultimately in the next. So maybe you want to, if, if, you, if you think I'm identifying with that, I want to respond in faith to that. Maybe you want to open your hands, hold your hands up, whatever it is, and I'm just going to lead you in a time and give you a, just a little bit of silence. Whatever it is, bring it towards God now. Cry out to him and say, I believe, help my unbelief, and bring the situation, name them. Name the person. You might be praying for healing. You might be praying for salvation breakthrough. You might be praying for a work situation, a school situation, a mental situation, anything. Cry out to him now and say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for the revelation of your son. We want to thank you that we have seen you. We want to thank you that we know you. We want to thank you that we can cry out to you. We thank you that you have revealed that to us. You've opened our eyes to see you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that, God. And we pray for all these situations here. God, we ask you to move in power in them. Lord God, we say we believe, but God, help us in our unbelief. Lord God, and we are men and women who are going to commit ourselves to prayer, commit ourselves to following you because we love you and we serve you and we will walk on the way with you, Lord Jesus. Amen.